turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Gary Lovejoy, his latest book, Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? That's coming up uh, later this first hour of today's program. But the new, the uh, breaking news story that just uh, broke a few moments ago, the United States and Britain carried out a series of airstrikes on military locations belonging to Iran-backed Houthis and Yemen early this uh, uh, it's Friday there in uh, response to militant groups ongoing attacks on vessels traveling through the Red Sea. The anticipation of the attack, Houthi forces uh, transported some weapons and equipment and fortified others, the Wall Street Journal reported, citing a U.S. defense official. Local reports indicate Houthi militants were evacuating the Red Sea city of Hodeidah. This is a uh, expected uh, campaign that we learned about earlier in the day, but was carried out just a short time ago. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, he briefed his cabinet of ministers late Thursday on the imminent military intervention. British media also reported that other political figures, including the leader of Britain's opposition Labour Party, as well as the Speaker of the House of Commons, had been briefed by the government. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby called on the Houthis earlier Thursday to stop these attacks attacks, saying that the terrorist group would bear the consequences for any failure to do so. Well, the joint strike comes after Iran forces seized an oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman early Thursday morning. The seized vessel was in transit to Turkey when the Iranian naval forces boarded and seized the vessel, according to Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder from the Pentagon. The key for military action in Yemen is to respond in a way that does not lead to the never-ending tit-for-tat that has been the administration's approach in Syria and Iraq, and it has failed. That's a quote from Richard Goldberg, a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a former National Security Council official uh, in a statement. The president needs to fundamentally change the calculus for Iran and its proxies. Has President Biden ordered the Houthis to be relisted as a foreign terrorist organization? President Biden ordered the $10 billion for Iran to be frozen. Has he? Will any IRGC uh, targets in Yemen or Iran's intelligence cargo ship be targeted? These are all relevant questions that help inform what the policy is and whether deterrence will actually be restored, end quote. Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi militants have stepped up attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea in recent weeks and protest against Israel's war in Gaza. Various shipping lines have suspended operations instead, taking the longer journey around Africa. Fourteen countries, including the United States, issued a joint statement last week saying the Houthis will bear the responsibility for the consequences should they continue to threaten lives, the global economy, or the free flow of commerce in the region's critical waterways. Today represents that consequence. The U.S. military said the Houthis earlier on Thursday had staged their 27th attack on shipping since the 19th of November 
firing an anti-ship ballistic missile into international shipping lanes in the Gulf of Aden. Earlier this week, U.S. and British naval forces shot down drones and missiles fired by the Houthis toward the southern Red Sea after the Royal Navy warship HMS Diamond was attacked. The Houthis, who seized much of Yemen in a civil war, have vowed to attack ships linked to Israel or bound for Israeli ports. However, many of the targeted ships have had no links to Israel whatsoever. That's the uh, top story of the evening. In other news, Hunter Biden made a surprise appearance on Wednesday morning at a congressional hearing where lawmakers were debating whether to hold him in contempt over his refusal to comply with a subpoena, subpoena rather, to appear for a deposition back in December. Well, after opening statements from Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and ranking Democrat Jamie Raskin, Representative Nancy Mace immediately laid into the first son, calling him a coward over his refusal to appear for the closed door deposition to answer questions about his alleged overseas influence peddling operation. My first question is, who bribed Hunter to be here today? That's my first question. Second question, you are the epitome of white privilege coming into the oversight committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no, well... I won't mention the body part she made reference to. Well, Mace was then interrupted with a chorus of interjections to which Mace asked, are women allowed to speak in here? Mace continued, I think that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now and go straight to jail. Our nation is founded on the rule of law and the premise that the law applies equally to everyone no matter what your last name is, end quote. Well, Hunter, who was in the room, abruptly left the hearing a few minutes later, just as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene was recognized to speak. Hunter Biden defied orders to attend a closed-door deposition and instead gave a public press conference on Capitol Hill on the 13th of December in front of the Senate. The um, Oversight Committee gathered January 10th to determine whether the younger Biden refusal Uh, To attend the December deposition falls under contempt of Congress. Those convicted of criminal contempt of Congress can be sentenced with a fine of up to $100,000 and imprisoned for not less than one month, nor more than 12 months. Hunter uh, currently faces nine federal tax charges, three of which are felonies. Uh, Related to his alleged failure to pay over one million dollars worth in taxes, Biden also faces three federal gun charges in Delaware to which he pled not guilty in October. Hunter Biden's arraignment in the uh, in the uh, uh, those charges is scheduled to take place on the 11th today in California. On that note, Hunter pled not guilty in his initial appearance in federal court on Thursday after being charged with tax crimes out of the special counsel David Weiss's investigation. Judge Mark Scarcy presided over the proceedings. Biden was uh, processed after the hearing by the U.S. Marshals Service. Hunter Biden pled not guilty to all nine federal tax charges stemming from the investigation. Weiss charged Biden in December, alleging a four-year scheme when the president's son did not pay his federal income taxes from January 2017 to October 2020, while also filing false tax reports. Weiss filed the charges in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. The charges break down to three felonies and six misdemeanors concerning $1.4 million in owed taxes that have since been paid. In the indictment, Weiss alleged that Hunter engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in self-assessed federal taxes he owed for tax year 2016 through 2019 from 
in or around uh, January 2017 through in or about October 15, 2020, and to evade the assessment of taxes for tax year 2018 when he filed false returns in or about February of 2020. And the drama continues. Meanwhile, in Olympia, lawmakers are back in session in Olympia for a 60-day session. Sessions during even years, rather, are 60 days, while those held in odd years are 105 days to allow more time to negotiate state budgets. But Speaker of the House Lori Jenkins, a Democrat from Tacoma, said the short session would not keep legislatures, legislators rather, from exploring a long list of priorities. She said she's optimistic and determined. I invite you all to work together with me on solutions. Moves to expand behavioral health, combat fentanyl addiction, and increase affordable housing were all mentioned in Jenkins' opening day address to House members. House Minority Leader Drew uh, Stokesbury, a Republican out of Auburn, said the state uh, also has to look at providing tax relief for citizens. Several proposals would generate rebate checks for Washingtonians. Governor Jay Inslee, he proposed offering low-income families assistance paying Utility bills. Democrat Senator Mark Mullet from Issaquah has a bill to reduce car tab costs and House Republicans are backing a proposal to offer two hundred and fourteen dollar checks to everyone in the state who is a registered car owner. The funds would come from an estimated one point three billion dollar surplus generated by the state's new climate policy, the Climate Commitment Act. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dr. Gary Lovejoy, author most recently of Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? That's coming up in our next segment. Well, on Wednesday, with six days to go until Iowa's caucus kickoff, the Republican presidential nominating calendar, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis no longer predicts victory and instead vows that we're going to do well here. DeSantis at the Fox News town hall on Tuesday in Iowa's capital and largest city emphasized that the battle for the GOP nomination is a long process and pledged that he's in it for the long haul. DeSantis, who was convincingly reelected to a second term as Florida's governor 14 months ago, was once the clear alternative to former President Trump in the Republican White House race. He was solidly in second place behind Trump, who remains the commanding frontrunner as he makes his third straight presidential bid. But after a series of campaign setbacks over the summer and autumn, DeSantis saw his supporters, or his support rather, in the polls erode. While rival Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor who served as ambassador to the United Nations in the Trump administration, in recent weeks has caught up with DeSantis for second place in the polls in Iowa and in national surveys. Haley also surpassed DeSantis and surged to second place and narrowed the gap with Trump in New Hampshire, which holds the first primary, just eight days after Iowa. Last month in multiple interviews, even though he was down double digits in the polls to Trump in Iowa, DeSantis predicted victory. We're going to win Iowa, he predicted. We've got the organization in place, the governor declared. Um, in uh, Iowa to uh, a week before Christmas. But on Tuesday, when asked by Fox News special report chief political analyst uh, Brett Baer and the story executive editor and anchor Martha McCallum, the moderators of the town hall about his finish in a state that many consider make or break for him, DeSantis twice answered, we're going to do well. Well, a private Christian school in Iowa announced some of its staff will be armed while on campus in a bid to better protect the school from potential attacks. The staff, who had been 
selected and trained will remain anonymous. And with God's help, this layer of protection will never need to be deployed. We expect no changes to the day to day experience of students and staff. The superintendent of Siouxland Christian School located in Sioux City uh, said in a letter to the school community last week, the school is not detailing how many staff members will be armed while on campus or their identities in order to protect the staff who are taking this courageous responsibility. She added that the school had been considering the policy for a year before the official announcement last week. Well, House Republicans, they're doubling down in their ongoing investigation into the White House over its decision to allow plans to house migrants on public land in New York. Natural Resources Committee Chairman Bruce Westerman, a Republican out of Arkansas, and Representative Paul Gosar out of Arizona, the top GOP member of the panel's oversight subcommittee, sent a series of new questions and document requests to White House Counsel on Environmental Quality. Chairwoman Brenda Mallory in a letter on Monday, according to Republicans, the House, uh, the White House migrant uh, housing plans appear to disregard environmental concerns. The pair opened the probe in November, issuing their first request for additional information regarding the environmental approach and approval process for leasing Gateway National Recreation Areas Floyd Bennett Field, property located in New York City's Brooklyn Borough and managed by the National Park Service to the local government for migrant housing. Uh, Mallory, though, ignored that letter in September amid the ongoing migrant surge at the southern border and related influx in New York City. The Department of um, the Interior agreed to lease portions of Floyd Bennett's fields property. Officials then constructed temporary housing on the land along the shore of the Jamaica Bay. However, the Republican leaders have pointed out that prior to the decision to lease the property, Democratic New York Governor Kathy Hochul noted the DOI had itself argued such an action would likely violate federal laws. The governor, who has called for federal assistance in dealing with her state's migrant influx, remarked in August that officials told her office they do not allow for use of shelter on any of their properties. Republicans also expressed concerns the White House Council on Environmental Quality allowed the DOI to bypass the normal eco-review process mandated under the National Environmental Policy Act. In 1969, that law requires federal agencies to review the environmental impacts of projects and proposals on federal land before approval. The American Petroleum Institute, or API, the nation's top fossil fuel industry group, is launching an eight-figure national television and digital advertising buy to educate voters and policymakers on key energy policy uh, issues ahead of the 2024 elections. The group's ad blitz, dubbed the Lights on Energy campaign, will highlight how continued domestic oil and gas production is vital for meeting global energy demands, according to API, which previewed the campaign for Fox Business. The campaign, which will involve regional targeting in Washington, D.C. and key states, will further work to dismantle policy threats, including those the Biden administration has pursued as part of its climate agenda. The goal of the campaign is to really educate voters and policymakers on what's at stake for American Energy going forward, API President and CEO Mike Summers said in an interview. The real concern that we have is that some of the policy decisions that this administration has made over its few first few years could really sow the seeds for the next energy crisis if we don't make the right decisions in the next year. Summers added that the campaign is time to inform voters and policymakers, especially as the election campaign season really heats up. A new invasive compliance rule has gone into effect in 2024. The catch is that it primarily targets the nation's small businesses and almost nobody is aware of it. 
Well, this abomination, as critics refer to it, is a rule of the Corporate Transparency Act. It seeks to collect beneficial ownership information on those who not only own but exert control over primarily small business entities. This information includes both business and personal information like names, address, identity numbers from documents like a driver's license or U.S. passport doing business as DBA names for the business and more through a U.S. Treasury Bureau called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. However, this rule is exempting more than 20 types of business entities, including publicly traded companies and U.S. operating companies with 20 or more full-time employees and $5 million in sales, among others. All small business owners that have entities associated with their business, which includes any one-person businesses using structured like single-member LLCs, S-Cores, or otherwise, that don't meet the exemptions are required to report. This is estimated to impact tens of millions of small businesses. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden, as expected, made his initial appearance in the federal crime case stemming from special counsel David Weiss's investigation on Thursday in California. The first son made his initial appearance in the U.S. District Court in downtown Los Angeles at 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time today. Judge Mark Scarzi, who presided over the proceedings, uh, Biden is expected and did um, was processed after the hearing by the U.S. Marshal Service. Weiss charged him in December, alleging a four year scheme uh, when the uh, president's son did not pay the federal income taxes he had uh, sufficient income for at the appropriate time. House Republicans are rolling out a toolkit for states that they argue will help strengthen U.S. election security. The Committee on House Administration, led by Representative Brian Stile of Wisconsin, is introducing the Uniform State American Confidence in Elections Act. Always a mouthful. A package of recommended legislation for states aimed at increasing voter confidence in elections. It comes on the eve of the 2024 election cycle's first big test. The 2024 Republican Iowa caucuses coming up next week. I'm focused on increasing voters' confidence and participation in our elections, Stiles says. By providing a toolkit of election integrity bills to states, we are going one step further in securing our elections and increasing Americans' confidence. confidence rather. Representative Laurel Lee, a Republican out of uh, Florida and chair of the subcommittee on elections, said the Americans need to feel confident that their elections are secure, which is why we have compiled crucial election integrity measures into model state legislation. The package isn't set to uh, is a, is not a set of mandatory bills, but rather a practical framework drawing upon successful election integrity measures implemented in various states, according to a one page summary. Representative Elise Stefanek, the Republican out of New York, joined Fox and Friends on Wednesday to respond to migrants being placed at a New York City school, forcing the students to learn remotely. The chair of the House Republican Conference called on the Senate to take up a bill that would prohibit such a practice. Representative Stefanik said it outrages every New Yorker and every American, or at least it should. And if you look at the polling, 84 percent of New Yorkers believe that this is a border crisis and they know it's a direct result of Joe Biden's failed policies and Eric Adams and Kathy Hochul's failed policies when they rolled out the red carpet to claim they're a sanctuary city, a sanctuary state. Now, look at who's paying the price, hardworking New York families. And in the case of this school, over 60 percent of those kids come from economically disadvantaged families. 
That is unacceptable. Well, these parents now don't know what to do, and we know there is a negative impact when you're forced to do remote learning. So it is unacceptable. So she is proposing uh, legislation that would prohibit the practice. We're going to take a break. When we come back, a conversation with Dr. Gary Lovejoy, his latest book, Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, marriage is a commitment born on the wings of love that embrace the whole person, warts and all. So says my next guest, Dr. Gary Lovejoy, who's been a marriage therapist for 40 years. At a time when commitment levels are low and failure rates are high, he encourages couples not to subdue their differences in the name of accommodation. He's the author of Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? And he says it's incumbent upon every couple to periodically assess the current state of their marriage to determine if there are any ways they relate to each other that are perceived to be disrespectful or that draw down the level of trust. And he says the unexamined life is simply not an option if you want a satisfying marriage. Well, Dr. Gary Lovejoy, he earned his B.A. degree in psychology from California State University, Long Beach, in um, an M.A. degree from California State University, Los Angeles, an M.R.E. degree from Fuller Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. from the United States International University. He was in private practice and professional counseling for over 40 years, specializing in marriage counseling and in the treatment of anxiety disorders and depression. He's the author of Light in the Darkness, Finding Hope in the Shadow of Depression and Eight Things Every Woman Should Know About Depression. Today, we're talking about his latest marriage in the Bible. What do they tell us? Dr. Lovejoy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. Well, I tell you, it's a bit exhausting to read through your your credentials, your study, (laughs) your your, uh, experience, and the books that you have written. So I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about your latest here, Marriages in the Bible. Oftentimes when we're thinking about the Bible, we don't necessarily think about the marriages and what they can teach us about how to relate to one another in our contemporary relationships. Uh, What prompted you to reflect and turn our attention back to the scriptures and what we can learn from the relationships that are recorded there? Well, that's a good question. Um, As I have read many, many uh, marriage books, and um, and all of them, uh, many of them at least, are, are, are pretty good. They they give very good principles. They they de- define certain uh, uh, issues that must be uh, taken care of, and they use biblical passages to support that. But one of the things I noticed that none of these books did is actually look at the real marriages in the Bible. And um, and so I went back through and I began reading about all the marriages throughout the Bible, and I, and I, and I went over some seventeen different marriages, and I was um, I discovered it was really eye opening because it. It helped me to understand that what God was doing was describing these uh, marriages in some, actually in some cases, very surprising details. You have to ask yourself the question, uh, why did God take the time to mm-hmm. describe these marriages in that kind of detail? He's not, a, he's not random. He's, there's purpose to everything he does. And, uh, and as I read through, I began to realize what he was doing is really giving us a blueprint of what works and what doesn't work in marriage. And he was using marriages, both good and bad, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to teach us that. But we've never gone back and really looked at the marriages for what they can teach us. And yet that is God himself teaching us how he thinks of marriage. And uh, and so sometimes we may ask ourselves the same question, how does he see our marriage? 
Yeah, yeah. And it is so helpful to see in Scripture the good, the bad, and the ugly. We can see ourselves in some of those relationships in areas that they're very successful and others that, that are struggling in areas that are familiar to us. So it really is helpful for us always and in every circumstance, but in this one as well, to go back to the Scriptures and see what do they have to teach us about how my marriage um, is functioning and how it ought to function, what God's intent was. You say that marriage is a complex union, and anyone who's been married for any length of time would have to say amen. But explain what you mean by that. Well, when uh, two people come together, it's a marriage of really uh, two family histories, uh, a cross-pollinization of, of two sets of interpersonal communication habits, two sets of expectations, and two sets of uh, conflict resolution styles. Uh, most of which are learned in their families of origin. Mm-hmm. When a couple comes in, the first thing I ask them is about uh, their families and where they came from, what, uh, how they resolved issues in their own families, because many times some of the issues, even the bad habits that are uh, displayed in their families, uh, they adopted just quite almost unconsciously and apply them in their, in their marriage. It's not working. And, uh, and we have to realize that when you're marrying someone, you're marrying not only that person, you're marrying into that family. And that family has its own unique characteristics. And if you don't understand them, or if you don't uh, take the time to really realize what's good and what's not good in those uh, marriages or those families of origin, then uh, you you will probably be uh, surprised, perhaps even shocked at times, how your sp- spouse is responding to certain situations. And so one of the things that we need to understand is that that uh, it's a complex union in the sense that it's an amalgamation of two family styles. And uh, once we understand that, then we can begin to sort out what, what's working and what's not working and why it's not working. And oftentimes you can see that. Uh, and in fact, they can often verify that by reflecting on their family and say, yeah, my mom and dad were not happy people. And, uh, and when they begin to realize that, then... Uh, uh, then they begin to realize how they've incorporated some of the very habits that have uh, uh, defixed their uh, their parents' relationships, and they're now doing the same to their own. Yeah, it's very typical to just rely on what's familiar without recognizing that maybe what's familiar wasn't really a good thing or wasn't really working well. In the book, um, we're talking about marriages in the Bible. Uh, you divide up different types of marriages that I hadn't really thought about in the way that you um, that you outline them here. The patriarchal marriages, the heartless marriages, problem-centered marriages, tender marriages, maturing marriages, righteous marriages, the different types of relationships that we find there that can inform our thinking and, and perhaps expose some of the areas that we're struggling uh, in as well. Um, talk a little bit about the, the variety that we see here that can help us along the way. Well, yes, I think uh, these different marriages uh, really reflect on different issues that are timeless. They're not just uh, relegated to the Old Testament time. Or these things are not just relevant uh, 2,000 years ago. They're relevant today. And uh, human beings are human beings, and they relate in much the same ways uh, in uh, then as they do now. And um, and so I'll give you an example of that. Um, with Abraham and Sarah, and again his son Isaac and Rebecca, one of the problems that they had uh, was uh, uh, was a lack of assertiveness, and it was odd because, uh, for example, Abraham was a man who was uh, quite bold in following God. And, and listening to his voice and, and going to the land of Canaan, which he did not know, and 
took his family and his belongings there. And that was a bold move for a man. And in this, and regarding his faith, he was implacable. But, but when it came to domestic issues, it was a different thing. He was not. Mm-hmm. The, remember twice he pawned his wife off uh, as uh, his sister to protect himself. And, um, and oftentimes uh, in that kind of situation, uh, you have to ask yourself, how did Sarah feel after not once but twice being uh, sent to uh, some, uh, some other man to save his, uh, her husband's, uh, or she thought anyway, save her husband's life? I don't think she'd think too well of that. Um, and you say, well, how does that apply today? Well, if you look at it, um, it may be that it may not, it has to do with the whole idea of protecting your spouse. How do we protect our spouse? Sometimes husbands don't uh, protect their wives. Their wives may get into be insulted or, or attacked by a family relative or maybe their parents or, uh, or whatever, and, uh, and they say nothing. They're silent. And what happens? What does the wife respond? She's angry. She's angry that she's not being protected. And she's angry that she's laying out there, laying bare to, to the uh, accusations of others. And so there's a need for, for a sense of protection which communicates true caring. Uh, another example of that uh, would be when, uh, when husbands and wives, uh, for example, let's say um, the husband uh, has a very strong family that uh, is unable to let go of their son, and they're, they're controlling of him, and, uh, and they take him constantly away from her, and, and, and they may, down, and they may uh, denigrate her. And she says, uh, she says to her husband in private, can't you protect me? They're putting me down. They are taking you away. They're doing these things. He said, well, you know, those are my parents. You know them. They're, they're just, they're, just, just let it roll off your back. What does that tell her? Mm-hmm. It tells her that she's, uh, she's completely unprotected. And so that problem that Abraham and Isaac, I mean, Abraham and, and his son Isaac with uh, Rebecca as well, both of them uh, uh, refused to protect their, their uh, spouses when they needed to, and it deeply damaged their relationships. And you could see that later with Sarah when she finally got fed up with his lack of protection uh, with regard to Hagar, and, uh, and she confronted him angrily and, and, uh, and said, you're the problem here. Do something. And then even then he said, well, you know, take care of it yourself. And uh, in other words, he was doing a pilot move, like washing his hands of it. I don't think he wanted to get involved in the conflict with the women. And, uh, and so he said, just take care of yourself. Well, she didn't do a good job of that, obviously. And he eventually had more, he, he caused more pain for him than he would have if he had dealt with the issue directly. But you see, she was upset and she was unhappy, not just because of what Hagar was saying, but because her husband was not protecting her. That did not communicate love and caring to her. Yeah. And that was painful to her and damaged her. And the same thing is true that happens today when that, that occurs. And I've seen marriages split up over that very issue, especially yeah. where you have controlling parents or relatives. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Dr. Gary Lovejoy. His latest book, Marriages in the Bible, What Do They Tell Us?, in which he covers many of the familiar names and couples, but you may not have thought of them in quite the same way. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Gary Lovejoy, author of Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? And the answer is they tell us a great deal if we'll only uh, uh, poise our ears to uh, to listen and open our hearts to be uh, to be taught. 
You write about um, divorce proofing a marriage. Is there such a thing? And can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, and when we talk about divorce proofing, I think we have, first of all have to mention the fact that probably the leading factor, even though there are other uh, many other factors involved, but the leading factor in in poor marriages is uh, very low self esteem. Um, and people, this, the level of say, hate, self-hatred that I have encountered over the years in working with couples is uh, is really, truly remarkable. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, it says in the psalm, be still and know that I am God. And why did he say that? Because he's the wellspring of a believer's identity formation. And it's in our relationship with him, we're confronted with three important truths about ourselves. Uh, our inherent uh, sinless sinfulness, our inherent lovability, not as, not our behavior, but our person, and uh, and the power of God's grace in confirming our essential worth. Uh, without that knowledge, you do not have the ability to be truly humble. And that's what's required in marriage, is humility. And, uh, and that's, that enables us to reach out beyond ourselves. Otherwise, we are, are uh, self-centered. And... Um, and we don't understand our reality and, and sense of lovability and worth uh, as badly distorted. Uh, humility, I think, is a sense of worth affirmed in Christ and uh, a sense of adequacy empowered by the Holy Spirit. It includes the attitude of gratefulness that Christ has covered the cost of our sin mm-hmm. and of modesty of how we see our own importance. And so that's one of the first things we have to do if we want to divorce proof of marriage uh, and actually uh, uh, give us uh, far better relationships in all of our relationships with our families, with our friends, and everyone else. Um, it starts there. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I, and I've run into this so many times, when people out of their desperation and out of their anger and their despair in, mar- in their marriage partners, uh, that, uh, that they feel even more unlovable because of it. Uh, I remember one woman came in, she said, I said, what is, uh, she was talking about the problems in her marriage, and she said, I feel, I, I feel, and she was talking about his, her husband's neglect, both emotionally and physically, and, I'm, and what I mean physically, not just sexually, but, but just the touch, the common touch, the, 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 the tender touch, uh, how you hold, uh, he might hold her face and kiss her, uh, the physical nature of, of affection, as well as an emotional uh, uh, embellishment of that, uh, of that love. Um, and they feel, and what she was saying is she felt excruciatingly lonely. And I have found that some of the most lonely people I've discovered are in marriage, not outside of marriage, but in marriage. They're, and, and they're lonely. And, uh, and they are feeling that sense of loneliness from the, the sense of, um, of, uh, of alienation from their husbands. And, uh, and that, that kind of situation is, uh, they, and then they, from there, it's a very short step to feeling very unlovable, mm-hmm. and they have a real problem with lovability. And I've often mentioned to people that that uh, our own lovability has uh, has been linked not to what other people think about us or treat or how they treat us, but to being created in the image of God. To deny our own lovability is to deny this truth. Um, to, in other words, to repudiate our person is to reject the nature of His. Now, you think about that for a moment. Because in John, it says, the first letter of John, it says, God is love. He's not just loving. He is love. He's the embodiment of love. Well, God who is love cannot create anything in his image that is not lovable. That would be an act against his own character. 
Uh, so when we insist on believing ourselves to be unlovable, well, we have been seduced by a lie. And that lie has been cultivated within the context of a marriage. It has been caught in the trap of, uh, of uh, rejection in many ways. Uh, and so um, there is a sense of, uh, of unlovableness uh, that, uh, and we lose sight of the fact of God's view of us. And once we know and understand God's view of us, and, uh, and that it's not dependent on what others think, but on who God is and who he thinks of us, what he thinks of us, is um, uh, then it, it changes the, the entire dynamic. I love what A.W. A. Tozer once said. He insists that God never thinks any bad thoughts about anybody, and he never had any bad thoughts about anybody. And most mm-hmm. people think that's, that's amazing. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, all like Christians can't imagine God doesn't feel negatively about them. They're convinced that even if, it's, if God's benevolence is true in principle, they're the exception. And so, um, but what, what happens is that when we start feeling better about ourselves, then instead of thinking less of ourselves, we simply think of ourselves less. So that frees us up to reach out to our neighbors and to each other and to our spouses, not self-consciously as if to impress them or to ask for something in return, but rather humbly so as to, uh, to, um, to serve them. And once we have that attitude firmly and fixed within the structure of our marriages, that changes the whole ballgame. And it begins, uh, it begins a, different, a whole different dialogue. And sometimes you have to change it up. Uh, you have to, to spark change. Or otherwise, they get uh, caught in a deadly routine. They become routinized in a routine that destroys the marriage. I don't know if we have time now, but I could give you an example of how, how you shake that up. Sometimes sure. as a therapist, you have to shake that up. So if we have a moment, I can share it. A, man, um, a woman came in, and she was uh, involved in a terrible relationship. They had been, uh, for about 10 years, she said, they had been almost every single day of their marriage, they had been uh, arguing. And it's, it was amazing to me that they had held together their 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 tenacity it was uh, was admirable <laughs> but uh but she was exhausted and she looked exhausted and she said i can't do this anymore and i said well tell me what's the pattern what happens and he says well when he comes home he hates his job anyway and his family was like this his father was like this with his mother and she mentioned and and he said he comes in and he starts an argument with me and i and of course i'm not a i'm not the kind that's a wallflower i i fight back and so i fight and pretty soon we are in a, knockdown, drag-out battle, and this goes on every, almost every single day. And so I asked her, I said, well, what does he, how, how, what does he expect you're going to respond when he says what he does? And she smiled, and she said, well, he knows exactly how I'm going to respond, because he knows what, who I am, and how I, how I take those things. And how do you, and, and what do you expect when he comes home? She defined it perfectly. She says, you understand each other. And I, said, and I said something to her that she didn't expect me to say. I said, your problem is your relationship is too, too predictable. And so I said, let's try something. And so I, I said, what I want you to do is on the way home, pick up a, a water pistol and, uh, and fill it with water and put it in your purse. And the next <laughs> time he comes after you like that, instead of uh, shouting back and starting the argument as you always do, do something different. Very simple instruction, do something different. Well, what can we do different? Well, pull out your, um, uh, your uh, squirt gun and give him a shot. And, uh, and then round the room giggling. Do you think that would be different? Said, oh, yeah, that would really be different. And, uh, and so she did. And uh, she came back two weeks later 
she was a different person. She was radiant. Mm-hmm. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, she said, I did what she uh, suggested, and I gave him a squirt, and, he, and as he, I was, ran giggling out of, the wind, out of the room, but I couldn't, bear, couldn't not bear to not look, so I turned and looked over my shoulder, and there he was, staying, water dripping off the end of his nose, in total shock. He said it totally ended the argument, and he had <laughs> no idea. He had that look on his face, what is that? And, uh, and so she said, uh, so th- uh, the next night, it happened again. She did that again, and he was shocked once again. But on the third night, she did this, and uh, and she uh, and he started arguing with her. And she reached into her purse to grab her her uh, pistol. She pulled it out, her water gun out, and she was looking down the barrel of his water pistol. <laughs> and, and what ensued was a good old fashioned water gun fight. And they ran through the house, squirting each other like teenagers, until they fell, <laughs> they fell on the floor in the living room, laughing their heads off. And once they did that, they looked at each other and said, you know what? It's the first time we've laughed in over five years. Mm. Five years, we haven't laughed. And that, then they sat up and had a, a serious conversation about their relationship. And it was a, the beginning of a change. And he then joined us, and we built a relationship that was solid after that. And their arguments came to an end. But what, and he said, well, what, what was, was there anything magic about the water pistol? No, it could have been anything. But the key was breaking up a solidified pattern that was destroying them and something that would uh, that would change the pattern. And so that changed it long enough for them to realize what they were missing in their relationship. They were drawn initially because they both loved to have fun with each other and they had lost all of that. Yeah, had marriage. forgotten it. Yeah. They well, I wish we had it. more more time to talk about uh, the extraordinary stories in the book from the Bible and what you have learned as a a counselor in in the area uh, area of marriage, and I would certainly recommend our listeners pick up a copy of Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us, Doctor Lovejoy? Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, and when we return, more of the headlines. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, former President Donald Trump today said that his legal issues have been set up by President Biden and the Democrats, declaring that it is their new form of cheating in the election. Well, he held a press conference at the Manhattan property at 40 Wall Street on Thursday after closing arguments were delivered in the non-jury civil trial stemming from New York Attorney General Letitia James' lawsuit against him. James sued the former president, his family, and his business empire, claiming he inflated his financial statements and deceived banks. He's denied any wrongdoing. The former president has repeatedly said his assets were actually undervalued. He's repeatedly said his financial statements had disclaimers requesting that the numbers be evaluated by the banks. Trump has been in court twice this week, once in a federal appeals in Washington, D.C., as he argues presidential immunity for charges in special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th case, and again Thursday for James' case in New York. The court appearance came just days ahead of the first in the nation primary contests in Iowa, the January 15th Iowa caucuses. My legal issues, every one of them, 
Every one, civil and criminal ones, are all set up by Joe Biden, crooked Joe Biden, he said. This is something that's never happened in this country. Even when you look at this, this is all about Biden, end quote. Well, he went on from there. He pointed to charges against him in special counsel Smith's classified records case, to which he pled not guilty. Biden is currently under special counsel investigation for the same thing, allegedly improperly retaining classified records. And the drama continues. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley sharing the debate stage in Iowa five days before the state caucuses kick off for the Republican presidential nomination calendar spent much of their two hour showdown Wednesday night attacking each other and disagreeing on policy. It was, after all, a debate. Well, that allowed the absent front runner in the GOP race, former President Donald Trump, to emerge relatively unscathed in a debate that was held a couple of hours after another contender, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, suspended his campaign. Trump, who skipped a Republican debate for the fifth straight time since last summer, was a few miles away in downtown Des Moines, taking part in a Fox News town hall. The verbal fireworks ignited, ignited rather moments into the debate, with DeSantis charging that Haley was a mealy-mouthed politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear just to try to get your vote, end quote. Well, yeah. Um, I don't mean the mealy mouth part, but anyway, Haley immediately hit back, labeling DeSantis as a liar. DeSantis, who was convincingly reelected to a second term as Florida's governor 14 months ago, was once uh, the clear alternative to Trump in the Republican White House race. He was solidly in second place behind Trump, who remains the commanding frontrunner as he makes his third straight presidential bid. Um Vivek Ramaswamy was not present. He did appear in a direct uh, to camera TV ad that aired on Iowa TV during a commercial break where he urged viewers to turn the, uh, well, stuff off. He used different language. Closing arguments in the NYAG case expected to be delivered after the judge rescinded an offer for Trump to speak. He actually spoke anyway. Well, top Republicans on the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, Senator Bill Cassidy from uh, Louisiana, rather, is introducing a bill uh, today to prohibit liberal states from forcing American citizens and other states to subsidize state programs that expand public health benefits to illegal immigrants. The legislation called the Protect Medicaid Act would prevent federal funds from being used to administer state Medicaid benefits provided to non-citizens by American citizens. If a state opts to extend Medicaid benefits to undocumented residents, the bill mandates that the state bears the full financial responsibility without imposing any cost on taxpayers from other states. And while federal law already prohibits illegal immigrants from receiving Medicaid, certain states, such as California, circumvent this restriction by using state state funds from their public health care system, known as Medi-Cal, to extend Medicaid benefits to individuals without legal immigration status. The bill seeks to require the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General to investigate how states offering Medicaid services to individuals in the country unlawfully maintain the separation of federal and state funds. The review would also examine whether these states employ loophole strategies like provider taxes and intergovernmental transfers to manipulate federal dollars. Also, it assesses if individuals without legal status benefit from covering outpatient drugs and whether this affects prices for American citizens. 
Well, the Biden administration warned Supreme Court justices on Monday, warned the Supreme Court justices that hundreds of thousands of deportation cases could be reset and sent back into the immigration system if the justices rule against the administration on a key case regarding the use of immigration notices. Well, the remarks came during oral arguments in the case related to notices to appear or NTA um, orders given to illegal immigrants before they're released into the interior to appear before an immigration court. However, sometimes those documents, when issued, do not include a court date and only say to be determined or TBD. A separate court date is later mailed to the illegal immigrant in those instances. If the immigrant does not turn up for that hearing, they can be ordered deported in absentia. Well, the case focused initially on an El Salvadoran illegal immigrant who was given an NTA in 2005 and months later was mailed a court date but says he didn't receive it. The case has been joined by two other illegal immigrants with similar situations. The suit is the latest immigration case to face the court, which has faced a plethora, such a word, a plethora of uh, cases related to illegal immigration and border security in recent years and will face more in 2024. Well, the court will this year take up a dispute between Texas and the government's uh, over Texas construction of razor wire at the border and whether federal officials can cut it. Uh, Meanwhile, the government has also sued Texas over its new anti-illegal immigration law, which allows state and local law enforcement to arrest illegal immigrants. Governor Greg Abbott has pledged to fight the case to the Supreme Court if necessary. Well, the U.S. is currently facing a massive immigration backlog, which has been growing for years, but has skyrocketed amid the recent migrant crisis. The immigration court backlog is now over three million And the number of illegal immigrants on the non-detained docket is now over 6 million. Harvard University offers a behemoth of uh, courses (laughs) to teach its students uh, topics including queer education, or rather queering education, black radicalism, and sexual fetishes. However, its course catalog, while offering many topics some would consider strongly critical of America, shows it does not offer significant courses focusing on American patriotism in depth, despite taking in hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars every year. In 2021, Harvard received $625 million from American taxpayers. That's you and me. All the while, the Ivy League boasts over $50 billion in its endowment. About the courses offered, Representative Elise Stefanek, the Republican from New York, said this is yet another example of the far left forcing their woke ideology on American students. Harvard University relies on billions in taxpayer dollars that funding is a privilege, not a right. Some companies and prospective students are starting to question their interest in Harvard, particularly after scandals relating to alleged pervasive anti-Semitism and pro-Hamas sentiment on campus and plagiarism charges. Americans deserve to know whether their tax dollars are being used for divisive and racist curricula. On behalf of the American people, the House Education and Workforce Committee's ongoing congressional investigation is using every tool available to shine a light on this rot infecting Harvard and schools like it across the nation, Stefanik and committee members said. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, students at a Brooklyn high school are being forced to take online classes due to the school housing illegal immigrants. Uh, students there are 
uh, were kicked out of the classroom to make room for nearly 2,000 migrants who were evacuated from a controversial tent shelter due to a monster storm closing in on the Big Apple. The city made the move amidst concerns, rather, that a massive migrant tent at Floyd Bennett Field would collapse from torrential rains and gusting winds, packing them instead into the second floor gym of James Madison High School five miles away. The school's neighbors were not uh, keen on the last minute decision. Uh, School buses are dropping off illegal migrants at Madison High School in Brooklyn. The school is closing tomorrow and all 2,000 students uh, will be doing class virtually to accommodate uh, those new residents. Representative Matt Rosendale is expected to file articles of impeachment against Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. When the House returns from recess, accusing the Biden administration official of violating his oath of office after failing to inform the White House and even some members of his own staff of his hospitalization last week. Well, the White House made it clear this week that the secretary of defense will face no consequences for failing to notify the president about an elective surgery, which landed him in the intensive care unit for days. And while Austin was unable to do his job, a deputy on vacation was also unaware of his condition and the National Security Council was not immediately informed. The president was also left in the dark. National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications John Kirby told reporters on board Air Force One on Monday in an attempt to explain away the situation. We'll take a look at process and procedure here and try to learn from this experience. And if there's some changes that need to be made, you know, in terms of process and procedure, we'll do that. End quote. Kirby then praised Austin's leadership over the years, including the disastrous and catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. The University of Michigan has increased the number of DEI positions to over 500. The university uh, continues to exponentially grow the number of staffers dedicated to advancing diversity, equity and inclusion with at least 241 paid employees now focused on the subject and payroll costs exceed $30 million annually. The payroll costs are $23.24 million for salaries and $7.44 million for benefits or $30.68 million, an amount that would cover in-state tuition and fees for 1,781 undergraduate students. 13 DEI uh, members uh, earn more than $200,000 and 66 earn more than $100,000 when factoring in benefits. The number of positions at Michigan's flagship university advancing DEI exceeds more than 500 when including those who work full-time or part-time on DEI and factoring in open and unfulfilled or unfilled positions. Well, Jim Wallace, the Christian evangelical pastor who is a VIP in liberal political circles, has a new book coming out. It's called The False White Gospel. I thought there were no distinctions among the body of Christ, but rejecting Christian nationalism, reclaiming true faith and refounding democracy. The book is time to stir up acrimony and resentment leading into the 2024 election. The False White Gospel is a sermon aimed at the a man quarter of the left or the a man quarter. Uh, Wallace considers former President Donald Trump and his followers evil, not just people with whom he disagrees. The problem with the book is that like so much of the uh, uh, writing on the left, the arguments are not specific. He shouts about racist white pastors, yet he doesn't name a single one. He condemns MAGA conservatives, yet will not examine who they are and why they believe what they believe. He preaches that America is awash in white supremacy, yet offers no contemporary examples, instead falling back, as is often the case, on old stories from America's past. The one villain that Wallace does name, and obsessively so, is, well, you guessed it, Donald Trump. 
In Wallace's theology, Trump is Satan, Herod, and Judas all rolled into one. The former president is ignorant, obnoxious, xenophobic, and racist, racist, racist. His supporters can't be reasoned with, and no attempt is made. Stop anti-Semitism, labeled Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib the 2023 Anti-Semite of the Year. Huh. On Monday night, Stop Anti-Semitism awarded the uh, representative the title of uh, 2023 Anti-Semite of the Year. She even beat out Hamas leader Ishmael Hananyeh or something very like that for the top spot, as well as supermodel Gigi Hadid. A press release noted that the results came after nearly 15,000 people voted in an online poll included in a pinned post from the organization X account is a 90 second video highlighting the squad members worst comments of anti-Semitism from the past year in response to Hamas penetrating the uh, Israeli border on October 7th. Uh, the terrorist attack, though it also details how there's plenty of examples from previous years as well. The video claims the title is long overdue. Armed hooded men attacked an Ecuadorian television station during a live broadcast on Tuesday, forcing terrified staff onto the floor as the country's new president declared a state of armed conflict. Gunshots could be heard in the background, though police said no one was uh, was injured. Security forces detained about 10 of the alleged assailants, some of whom appeared to be members of the powerful gangs. Um, well, two of them lost Lobos and another. The TV station takeover was one of several attacks across the country in a chaotic 24 hour period, police said, including about 30 car explosions and the kidnapping of seven police officers. Riots have also broken out at several prisons with reports of dozens of guards um, held by armed men. In response to this, President um, Noboa has ordered designated uh, has uh, ordered designated gangs as terrorists and ordered the uh, military to kill them at will i guess he's serious Former President Trump teased his vice presidential pick and touched on the Middle East and abortion in a Fox News town hall yesterday the former president signaled during an Iowa town hall event Uh, that he has already decided who he will choose to be his running mate in 2024. I can't tell you that, really. I mean, I know who it's going to be, Trump said, when he was asked uh, who his running mate would be. Speculation about Trump's potential running mate has run rampant in recent months, with a variety of names being floated, including GOP Congresswoman Nancy Mace, South Dakota Republican Governor Kristi Noem, Trump's GOP opponent and former United States United Nations ambassador Nikki Haley. Trump says he will deter foreign adversaries by peace through strength. Uh, he on um, how he plans to um, how the overturning rather of Roe versus Wade saved lives. The president, the former president, said for 54 years they were trying to get Roe versus Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. End quote. Okay. The Alejandro Mayorkas impeachment hearing has begun. The House Homeland Security Committee hearing on Wednesday got the ball rolling. Democrat ranking member Benny um, Thomas said that Republicans want to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary because he won't put kids in cages at the southern border. Democrat to ranking member Benny Thomas uh, uh, says it's really about Republicans being angry that the administration won't do what uh, they think Republicans want to do, take babies from their moms and put kids in cages from like the last administration. Of course, that began with the 
Obama administration, but that's not mentioned. Reporter Jenny Tear points out that Mayorkas impeachment hearing, the Oklahoma AG says foreign nationals from Mexico and China have flooded his state with illegal marijuana grown from uh, grows from uh, that involve fentanyl, labor and sex trafficking. The ongoing border crisis ensures a never ending flood of uh, foreign nationals who continue to perpetuate crimes that endanger our people. The Ohio House overturned the governor's veto banning gender reassignment surgeries for minors. And Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre deflected when asked about New York City's uh, closing a high school to house illegal immigrants. The uh, White House spokesperson speaking to reporters at the White House on Wednesday punted the issue of illegal migrants kicking kids out of their schools as the New York problem, claiming no responsibility for the catastrophic and unprecedented flow into American cities. And Senator Rand Paul grilled Dr. Fauci in congressional testimony while testifying before the House on Tuesday. The uh, uh, former um, cabinet member refused to explain the rationale for social distancing guidelines that he and other federal health officials heavily promoted during the COVID-19 pandemic. Representative Brad Winstrup uh, revealed after the closed door hearing, further probing the issue, Republican members of the committee asked why social distancing was not established as three, four or five feet. Fauci didn't uh, provide a clear answer to that question. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. If you're listening from Salem, want to thank uh, Pedro Bartez for producing and engineering in Seattle. And we'll uh, be back tomorrow. Have a great night. In Portland, we'll continue, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back. You're listening to the final two segments of The Georgine Rice Show, the Portland-only version. Well, San Francisco Unified School District administrators instructed high school teachers to engage in classroom discussions about the Israel-Hamas war. Now, that's not too shocking, but they were advising them to use an educational resource that argues Israeli terrorism has been significantly worse than that of the Palestinians, according to memos. Now, you should substitute Palestinians for Hamas, but that said, that's what the memo said, obtained by a parental rights watchdog group and shared exclusively with National. Review. Well, in memos to social studies and ethnic studies departments discovered by parents defending education, the district provided teachers with a host of resources to help lead classroom discussions on war, terrorism, colonization, and seeking peace. The first of the listed resources, Teach Mideast, promotes multiple anti Zionist articles and viewpoints, including an article published by Jerome Slater at the Middle East Policy Council. In that article, Slater blames Israel for Hamas violence and speculates that failed Palestinian resistance efforts have made Palestinian terrorism a last resort. While all terrorism is morally wrong, it is still possible and perhaps necessary to make some distinctions. There can be degrees of moral wrong. We commonly make such distinctions and consider mitigating circumstances, especially between moral wrongs committed in pursuit of just causes and the double moral wrong of injustices done for unjust causes. Slater wrote in the resources provided by uh, two teachers. For several reasons, reasons rather, Israeli terrorism has been morally worse than that of the Palestinians, in quotes. 
Uh, They also asked teachers to consider how they might educate in hopes of a truly just and lasting peace in Israel-Palestine and to ask students how has the uh, decades-long conflict between Israel and Palestine taken uh, taken shape over time to this current conflagration. Teach Mideast is uh, run by the Middle East Policy Council, a Washington, D.C. think tank that in 2007 accepted uh, funding from Saudi Arabia. Another teaching resource is a video titled Challenging Anti-Semitism from a Framework of Collective Liberation that seeks to um, uh, disentangle the false conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Uh, at the bottom of the memo to ethnic studies teachers, the department's superiors, or rather supervisor, either would work, um, notified teachers of an event that would offer a space for healing and reflection, specifically for ethnic studies teachers, that was held after school on the 18th of October. Also on October 18th, uh, students staged a walkout in support of Palestinian resistance and called for the ceasefire in Gaza. A member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors supported students' pro-Palestinian protest and said she would not stay quiet as she watches the Israeli military commit genocide in our name, end quote. She was quoted in 2021 in a local news article about the organization's curriculum uh, changes following the death of George Floyd, saying we're trying to highlight for our students that young people are at a, the center of these movements and we want to lift that up so young people feel a sense of power to make things better in the present and future. That wouldn't be by equipping them with uh, the perspective from each side of the issue and giving them the tools to determine for themselves what they believe, what they have reasoned is the right uh, position to hold. On the contrary, they're providing one worldview to the exclusion of the other. In other news, Harvard University students filed a lawsuit against university officials on Wednesday, claiming that they failed to protect Jewish students from severe and pervasive anti-Semitism harassment sparked by the Israeli-Hamas war. In a 79-page federal civil complaint, six Harvard graduates and law students who are members of the Students Against Anti-Semitism say the university has become a bastion of rampant anti-Jewish hatred and harassment, which has become increasingly acceptable. The suit says pro-Palestinian protests on campus have been rife with vile bigotry against Jews and Israel. Mobs of pro-Hamas students and faculty have marched by the hundreds through Harvard campuses, shouting vile anti-Semitic slogans and calling for death to Jews in Israel, the suit said. Those mobs have occupied buildings, classrooms, libraries, student lounges, plazas, and study halls, often for days or weeks at a time, promoting violence against Jews and harassing and assaulting them on campus. Well, Jewish students have also been met with anti-Semitic attacks online and in classes where faculty members have allegedly promulgated anti-Semitism. Harvard permits students and faculty to advocate without consequence the murder of Jews and the destruction of Israel, the only Jewish state in the world, the complaint says. Meanwhile, Harvard requires students to take a training class that warns that they will be disciplined if they engage in sizeism, fat phobia, racism, transphobia and other disfavored behavior. Well, the suit comes after Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned earlier this month with mounting pressure over Scandals involving her comments at the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses and over allegations that she's plagiarized in her past um, her past academic works. Well, during the hearing, Gay was asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate the university's code of conduct. And again, they um, are uh, counseled and trained 
um, and disciplined if they engage in sizeism, fat phobia, racism, transphobia, and other disfavored behaviors. But when asked about a call for genocide of the Jews, this is genocide, uh, whether or not that would violate the university's code of conduct or reply, it depends on the context of the situation. In other words, there are times when calling for the death of your fellow classmates is perfectly acceptable. Representative Elise Stefanik oppressed gay over the chance of intifada by students in their protests. And uh, gay uh, said the calls for violence didn't violate the university's code of conduct and claimed that the university is strongly committed to free speech and ideological diversity. Unless, of course, you're talking about sizeism, fat phobia, racism, transphobia and other disfavored behaviors. Well, a growing number of Americans are getting their news, not from the traditional source of newspapers, radios, TV and cable news, but from social media. Also, but not surprisingly, the two generations most inclined to get their news from social media are millennials and Gen Z. A survey conducted in 2022 found that 45 percent of millennials reported getting their news daily from social media sites. The study also observed that a growing number of Americans of all ages are consuming news via social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, X and TikTok. There's some great sites online, but I wouldn't necessarily list those as among them. Mobile devices such as iPhones are the leading means of accessing these uh, platforms, especially for teens. Interestingly, Gen Z teenagers, age 14 to 19, are consuming news more frequently than Gen Z adults, ages 20 to 25. According to a media trends survey conducted by uh, Deloitte Digital, 78% of teens are getting their news daily from at, the, at least one online source compared to, compared rather to 69% of Gen Z adults and 84% of other adults, older adults. When it comes to social media platforms with the highest percentage of users getting news from the site, X leads the way with 53% using the using it for news consumption. However, this percentage is down from 59% in 2020. Also, Facebook users are um, getting their news from the site. That's dropped from 54% to 43%. It was 54% in 2020 and 43% last year. The social media platform seeing the biggest growth in news consumption on its site is Chinese-owned TikTok. Back in 2020, 22% of users got their news from TikTok. By 2023, that had risen to 43%. Currently, reported Pew Research in November, 43% of TikTok users say they regularly get news on the site, up from 33% who said the same in 2022. TikTok users are now just as likely to get news from TikTok as Facebook users are to get their news from Facebook. And the age demographics that most use TikTok are teenagers and young adults. This doesn't bode well for the future, given Beijing's documented efforts not only to use the platform to suck up gobs of user data, but even more nefariously to use the popular platform to promote divisive and socially destructive ideologies. Indeed, TikTok is one of the psychological weapons now being developed by the People's Liberation Army. If a growing number of young Americans are getting their news from TikTok, just how reliable and trustworthy is that news? And you could ask the same question of the other platforms. Well, this really, um, this reality rather of an increasingly, uh, increasing number of Americans getting their news from social media makes even more important the need to prevent efforts by big tech and the federal government to engage in viewpoint censorship, which they typically couch in language of preventing misinformation or disinformation. 
Meeting Americans where they consume their news is where the current battle lines have been drawn. Democrats and the left media would love nothing more than to position themselves as the arbiters of what gets classified as reliable or trustworthy news and what gets blacklisted. Well, this is where TikTok, being a Chinese entity, creates quite a conundrum for conservatives. On the one hand, conservatives have repeatedly and rightly criticized big tech for its targeted censorship practices and for stepping all the over Americans free speech rights. But on the other hand, conservatives are equally wary of the Chai comms, the Chinese communists using TikTok for nefarious purposes, such as promoting more division and distrust among the country and thereby furthering their own geo- geopolitical aims. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the top issues for voters, according to the polls, are the economy and the border crisis, both of which just happen to be losing issues for the current president. Well, this explains Biden's decision to make abortion rights his top campaign issue, well, other than saving democracy. Well, according to Biden's deputy campaign manager, Quentin Fulks, the president has been adamant that we need to restore Roe. It is unfathomable that women today wake up in a country with less rights than their ancestors had years ago, end quote. Well, political seems to agree, as the left media outlet argued, when abortion rights are on the ballot, they will win voters across the political spectrum, though they don't always boost Democratic candidates on ballots advocating for them. End quote. Well, that's an interesting take. Abortion is a winning issue, even if the Democrat candidate promoting it doesn't win. Hmm. Former President Trump will not be allowed to deliver the closing argument in New York's civil fraud trial. Judges, uh, the judge ruled. However, later in the day, the former president was allowed to deliver the closing argument, or at least a portion of it. The Ohio House overrode the governor in the next step to outlaw trans child mutilation. And President Biden renominated Julie C. for labor secretary after the Senate declined to confirm her for 10 months. Maybe the 11th and 12th month will make a difference. Dr. Anthony Fauci finally coughed up to COVID failures. He refused to explain the rationale for COVID social distancing guidelines during his two-day congressional testimony, admitting that it wasn't really um, grounded in science. But it sure sounded good. Well, the judge ruled that Wisconsin's absentee voting van used in the 2022 election was illegal. And global shipping rates are set to jump as carriers avoid the Red Sea amid Houthi attacks. Taiwan is gripped by election fever as a new president and legislature will be voted on, voted in, I should say, on Saturday. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is being treated for prostate cancer and a severe infection. A White House panel had launched a probe into the defense secretary going AWOL. Donald Trump's mother-in-law is dead at 78. The court appears to have taken a dim view of Trump's immunity claim, and the former president will stay on the Nevada ballot as the judge dismissed the lawsuit. A court threw out the challenge to Ohio's voter ID law, and New York City moved thousands of illegal immigrants to high school gyms due to high winds forcing students to switch to remote learning. AMLO has a list of demands for Team Biden to help with immigration. And Pope Francis has called for universal ban on surrogacy, calling the practice deplorable and a grave violation of the dignity of women and the and children. 
U.N. agency teachers cheered Hamas as the October attack unfolded and called for the execution of Jews in a group chat. This is the U.N. Yemen's Houthis launched the largest Red Sea drone missile attack after the U.S. warned them of consequences. And it's believed that those consequences are expected to materialize tonight in a joint effort between the U.S. and the U.K. Armed men broke into a live TV studio in Ecuador shouting they had bombs after a powerful gang leader escaped prison. Well, inflation is rising. The December Consumer Price Index numbers are in, and surprise, they show that inflation is going back up again. Overall, December's annualized inflation rate came uh, came in at 3.4%, 0.2 percentage points higher than the widely anticipated 3.2%. And while the biggest driver for rising inflation was increasing a shelter costs, the fact is that Across the board, nothing got cheaper. Furthermore, while wages have risen 0.8% from a year ago, they're still far from keeping up with inflation. According to a recent Wall Street Journal poll, 53% say they've been hurt by the president's agenda. And a USA Today Suffolk University poll found that just 29% say the economy is in recovery. Meanwhile, in the face of this bad economy, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, she continues to plug the message rather that Bidenomics is working. The trouble for Joe Biden and Democrats, as the polls show, is that people aren't buying it. And for good reason, because what they are experiencing is the exact opposite. The economy isn't great. Well, DeSantis, Haley, they've debated and Trump's had a town hall. But the question is, will Donald Trump engage in an official debate at all over the course of the 2024 presidential campaign? Well, so far, his answer has been a resounding no. And as political strategies goes, it's hard to blame him based on current polling numbers. But a debate did happen last evening, hosted by CNN between Trump's two nearest opponents, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. DeSantis arguably came out on top as he was solid on his positions and effective in calling out Haley as being too much a part of the Washington establishment. Haley got her shots in, but was the more flustered of the two. Meanwhile, across town, Fox News held a town hall event that was clearly less challenging, where Trump fielded questions from the audience. He criticized Joe Biden for bringing chaos to the country, citing the border crisis and woke ideology permeating the country and the military. He contrasted Biden's chaos with his record, noting, I had no wars. I'm the only president in 72 years. I didn't have any wars, end quote. He also stated that he had already picked his running mate with the Iowa caucuses next week. The place of each of the candidates in the race for the Republican nomination will start coming into focus. And by the way, the weather is expected to be very severe in Iowa um, uh, coming up uh, next week. Well, Chris Christie has finally dropped out. It took him long enough, but Christie, rather Chris Christie, the uh, Trump deranged darling of the Democrats who kept taking the stage at Republican debates despite polling in the low single digits finally said something that he and Donald Trump agreed on that Nikki Haley isn't up to the job. Having dutifully denounced Trump, the uh, the guy he proudly endorsed in 2016, Christie said what everyone already knew the very moment he announced his candidacy, there isn't a path for me to win the nomination. But he persisted. He made his point in opposition to Donald Trump. And he stepped aside. Hunter Biden knew who was buying his art, we've just learned. So much for the ethical arrangement that Biden White House uh, told us back in 2021 would ensure the anonymity of the <clears throat> art lovers who have so far 
um, ponied up at least $1.3 million for Hunter Biden's creations. According to the New York Post, Hunter Biden's Manhattan art dealer said Tuesday that he never worked with the White House on the an ethics pact to ensure buyers would remain anonymous and added that the top purchasers were known to the first son, contrary to prior claims from President Biden's aides. Who then were these buyers? Well, not surprisingly, Hollywood lawyer and Biden buddy Kevin Morris, who met Hunter at a political fundraiser in December of 2019 and who has supplied him with luxurious living arrangements in California, was his top patron buying $875,000 worth of, well, art. The vast majority of Hunter Biden's art, said House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, has been purchased by Democrat donors, one of whom was appointed by President Biden to a prestigious commission after she purchased Hunter Biden's art for tens of thousands of dollars shortly after Joe Biden's inauguration, end quote. Comer called the younger Biden's art business an ethical nightmare, adding the White House has a lot of explaining to do about misleading the American people. Indeed, it does. But we ought not expect any real accountability for the uh, for the deal. Well, good news. Election integrity held up in Ohio. Republicans have their work cut out for them in 2024 as uh, efforts have been made um, to uh, make permanent electoral conditions that made the 2020 election such a sloppy and fraud friendly mess in Ohio, which enjoys strong Republican majorities. The judge um, uh, ruled that the system they set up will stand. And a judge ruled that uh, Wisconsin's absentee voting van was uh, illegal. And Taiwan is gripped by election fever. Well, on this day in history, 1861, Alabama became the fourth state to withdraw from the Union. 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt proclaims the Grand Canyon National Monument. It would become the National Park in 1919. 1913, the first enclosed sedan-type automobile, the Hudson, goes on display at the 13th National Automobile Show in New York. 1935, aviator Amelia Earhart begins an 18-hour trip from Honolulu to Oakland, California. That would make her the first person to fly solo across any part of the Pacific Ocean. 1939, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax, the British Foreign Secretary, meet with Italian leader Benito Mussolini in Rome. The rest, of course, is history. 1964, U.S. Surgeon General Luther Terry issues Smoking and Health, a report which concludes that cigarette smoking contributes substantially to mortality from certain specific diseases and to the overall death rate. 1977, France sets off an international uproar by releasing Abu Daud, a PLO official, behind the massacre of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics. 1978, two Soviet cosmonauts aboard the Soyuz 27 capsule link up with the Salyut 6 orbiting space station, where the Soyuz 26 capsule was already docked. 1989, nine days before leaving the White House, President Ronald Reagan bids the nation farewell in a primetime address saying of his eight years in office, we meant uh, to change a nation and instead we changed a world. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blinn for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.